2, and I'm reading on behalf of Carmen Cooper this morning. Uh, We're reading verses 1 to 10 of Ephesians 2. It's found on page 1818 in your pew Bibles. As we prepare to read, let's uh, bow our hearts. Uh, Holy Spirit, thank you for your presence in our midst as we read and hear and explain your word. We ask, Father, that uh, you will use this time to our upbuilding and to your honor and glory, and that you will especially indwell Pastor Chris as he opens your word to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Ephesians 2, beginning at verse 1. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Justin. We're in this series here on on the letter to the Ephesians. It's a a letter written to the church uh, that was gathered in Ephesus, uh, and and Paul's writing to them. Paul was one of the people who engaged with this congregation and, and some of the early converts to Christianity. Uh, and and helped really uh, organize this church. And he's writing later on to this congregation in in the midst of their cultural struggles. And and they're in a context that we've we've talked about a little bit before of of a huge amount of of idol worship that was going on. Uh, The main kind of income or industry in the area was actually designing uh, idols. So there there was a whole silversmith industry in Ephesus. There was a, a great temple, one of the great temples of the Roman Empire, uh, a temple to Artemis, was there in Ephesus. And, and this shaped the whole way they engaged the world. In fact, we could say that, that they had a, very, a fairly defined cosmology. And, and cosmology is a little bigger word than I usually use up here. It's, cosmology is that how do we understand the way the universe is put together? So it's the way they looked out at the world and they said, this is how everything fits together. And they had three distinct layers to their 
to their cosmology. The first layer was kind of the, the flesh and blood, us. It's things we can touch, material things. Um, it's the ground we can hold on to or walk on, and it's, it, it's the fruit we can taste. It's that type of things that, that are available immediately to our senses. The next layer w- was an area that, that the NIV here translated, translates as air. Uh, he says, the one who is the, the ruler of the kingdom of the air. And that air was a, a middle ground. It wasn't physical. It was kind of invisible. But that's where the place where things like rage and anger and lust and, and all sorts of emotions resonated. Except they didn't think they were abstract ideas. They viewed those as, as real entities, real uh, real kind of, kind of beings, spiritual beings. And they used often with that the phrase of, of principalities and powers. They dwelled in the air, in this middle spiritual space, and they were affecting us all the time. There was a constant interaction. And, and if life was going to go well, we had to find a way to control what was happening in the air, in that spiritual realm. And then they had an area where they talked about the heavens, and sometimes even the highest heavens was the language. And that is the place where where the gods dwelled, the ultimate gods. And and so in their worldview, Artemis and Zeus and and those type of gods dwelled there. And, And Paul, in this passage in particular, is playing with all three of these levels. And and we'll hear him do so as we go through this morning. So there's a, a physical, tangible, there's kind of a spiritual realm where powers and principalities have, have influence on our lives and affect the quality of our life. And then there's the gods, the big picture gods up above. There are three spots in this passage we're going to pause. And each of those spots have a hinge point that moves us to the next section. And so I'll emphasize those along the way. The first is, is the opening three verses, and, and Paul starts out in a, in a very abrupt way. I don't know if you caught that, but the first words are, as for you, you were dead. Okay, I, I don't know about you, but if somebody sent me a letter, and that's the first word he says to me, specifically, I mean, Paul's, Paul's talked about God and God's grace, Paul's talked about his own thankfulness for God's people, and then after talking about God and himself, he turns around and says, but you're dead. How many of you would continue reading? I mean, that's the impulse, right? What did you just say? I mean, we want to push that away, and, and, and especially the idea that we're dead. But Paul, Paul decides to dig himself a little deeper here. He, he continues to go on, and, and the language he, he uses here is that you are dead in your trespasses or dead in your sins uh, in the life you used to live. But, but the language in there, underneath all of that, is a, another word. It, it is the word for walking about or walking around. In, in other words, Paul just said, you are the walking dead. You are a zombie. All of you. You were zombies. How many of you had zombies come to your door last night? We had a cute little girl from up the street and she plays with our kids sometimes, and she came to our door and just completely decked out, and it was hilarious to see, but we probably had four or five zombies last night (laughs) coming to our door. 
Our culture actually is, is paying a lot of attention to zombies and vampires and things like that. Have you picked up on that in the broader culture? And part of me wants to say, ah, let's stay away from this. And the other part of me says, actually, it's naming a reality that Paul was naming here. That apart from God, apart from communion with God in Jesus Christ, we literally are zombies. We are the walking dead. There is no hope for us. So just to exercise a moment, everybody stand up if you can. And I'm not going to ask you to walk down the aisles and all of that, okay? Some of you might relish that opportunity, but just your best zombie pose. Uh, 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 Right? Everybody got that? All right, all right, you can sit down. That idea, that's what Paul's saying, and not in a humorous way. He's trying to communicate a reality. That somehow when we are separated, not, not just from this middle sphere, but when we are separated from God, we are no better off than zombies. We might be physically alive, but we are already dead. And not just a little dead. Not just the Princess Bride, if you've seen that movie. Not just a little bit dead. We are fully dead. There is no hope for us. This is one of the hardest parts in our culture for us to get through. In fact, we have a a rhythm that we do here in this congregation when we worship, and it is really based on this idea from from what Paul's saying to us in this passage. Each week, you hear us say, we're entering a time of confession, a time where we name our sins. It is completely countercultural to do that, and to do that in a public space, to create space where we say, not here's what's going well in my life, but here's where I'm dying. Here's where what's in my life is not right and not good, and in fact, it's not just a little not good, it's death. If I continue walking in this way, I will die and I will bring the people around me down with me. God, help When we do that confession time that this morning uh, uh, Joel and Rachel led us through, that part of our worship is helping us to enter into this space and to look in the mirror and say, you're right, God. I'm dying. I'm dying in my sins. I'm dying in those things that are are holding on to my heart that I don't want to give over to you. I'm dying in the way I treat my spouse or my kids or my parents or, or my neighbor. I'm dying here. I'm dying because I still deny you in so many ways. I'm dead unless you do something. It's really radical what Paul's doing here. Because Paul's putting up a mirror in front of us and he's holding that mirror up and saying, look at who we really are, who we've become. So often what we want to do is is we want to take the word of God and we want to walk around to other people and we want to say, sorry, do you know what your sin is? And, And have you seen your sin? And how about you? Have you seen your sin? But that's not what Paul's doing here. 
Paul's saying, if we take an honest look at God's word, if we really enter into this story fully, it's not about how other people are sinning. It's me. It's me, oh Lord. I'm the one who has sinned. I've got my sin. And I'm dead in it. This passage should should mitigate our tendency to point fingers and point out other people's sins and and instead take the time to stop and look at the sin in our own heart, in our own lives. Say, Lord, they might be dying, but I'm dying. I'm dying in my own sins, in my own pattern, and I got to own that. Paul at one point says, I'm the chief of all sinners. Paul's owning it and modeling it for us. Instead of saying, that person is the chief of all sinners. Sorry to point at you, Robert. Um, Instead of saying, that person is the chief of all sinners. Paul says, no, I'm the chief of all sinners. Jesus said the same similar thing on the Sermon on the Mount. He said, "Instead instead of focusing on the speck in your neighbor's eye, take the time first to look at the log in your own eye. Look at that thing that's blinding you from seeing God's truth and and seeing his grace and his love in Jesus Christ. Look at what's keeping you apart from God. Start there. So Paul, Paul's first words here are hard words for us to hear, but completely necessary ones. We are dead in our sin. Heidelberg Catechism, question and answer two says if we're ever to know the comfort of God's grace, if we are ever to really know the comfort of his grace, we first have to come to grips with the misery of our own sin. It's not just a little inconvenient. It's not just a bad habit. It is poison that is killing us. So we, as God's people, need to be a people who are acknowledging, I am dying. If it is not for God, I'm dead man walking. I am a zombie. And then Paul adds perhaps one of the most powerful transitions in Scripture. The words he uses here, start of verse 4, but because of his great love for us, God who is rich, in mercy. I heard a speaker once who, who got me to pay attention a little more to the Greek here. He, he used this passage and another one in Romans and talked about but theology, not B-U-T-T, B-U-T, but theology. And, and I am dead but for God's grace and said you can summarize up the whole of Scripture in that phrase, I am dead but for God's grace. The word order in the Greek is is really important here. As for you, you were dead, but God. That's the word order, but God. In other words, God saw us in our death. God saw us in our sin and said, no, that will not be the end of you. You will not be this way forever. I will not let the story end with you dying but God and and Paul wraps around two 
characteristics of God right into this but God statement. But God for his love, who is rich in mercy. And he brings us back to what started out in Ephesians chapter 1, where God is lavishing the riches of his kingdom on us without us having to do anything or without us having the ability to contribute. And Paul wraps us into that language again. God, who is love, who is rich in mercy, who is lavishing on us his grace. And what did he do? So that's the transition point. But God transitions us to the second posture. Who has seated us. God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. What we're witnessing here is, is really, and this is why I filled up the baptismal font, even though we're not doing a new baptism today. We were dead. We were under the water. We were submerged. We were drowning in our sin and gone. But God, in Christ, raised us up into the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus and you remember the cosmology. It's not just God raised us up so we're on par with the spirits of the air. God raised us up into the heavenly realms with Christ Jesus and seated us there. So if the first posture is that we're walking around like zombies and we're walking in our death, the second posture Paul's introducing us to is that we are seated with Christ Jesus. It's a throne room picture. We have thrones alongside Christ Jesus' throne. The only people who were allowed to sit in the king's presence were royalty. The only people allowed to sit in the Roman pantheon were the gods themselves. We have been raised up with Christ Jesus and seated with him. There is something powerful in that image. What Paul is saying, that the authority that is Christ Jesus the authority that belongs to him, the power that belongs to him over all the principalities and powers in the world, it belongs to us too because of God's grace. That he has raised us from the deepest death, depths, from Hades itself, to use that cosmology, to the highest throne room they could imagine possible. We were dead. We belonged in hell. And God lifted us up in Christ Jesus and seated us with Christ. A position of power and authority, of ruling. You may think, man, this is getting kind of abstract, but, but there is something powerful in that seating us and returning to us the power and authority. Because that's really what we started out with in Scripture. Do you remember that Genesis account when God made us? He said, I'm giving you rule and authority, the, the power to rule over all the earth, to subdue it, to, to cause it to flourish, to bring it to life. And when we were dead in our sins, we weren't ruling over anything. Everything was ruling over us. And in Christ Jesus, we have been restored to that position of power and authority in God's kingdom where we again have rule and authority. In other words... God's just made us not only alive in Christ, but able again to carry out the work God originally made us for. He's restored us to this position of power and authority where we can again 
engage the work God created us for. Not because we deserved it, not because we somehow in our death found a way to climb out of that hellhole, literally, but because God in his grace in Jesus Christ said, you who were completely dead have now been raised up and given all authority with Jesus Christ to go about doing the work I created you to do. You are no longer powerless and dead. You are fully alive. And then another transition. After saying we're fully alive, he emphasizes, for it is by grace you have been saved. And this, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. So in this emphasis, in this restoring us from death to full life and transitioning us towards the third pasture, which we'll get to in a minute, he's reminding us that we didn't do any of this. It wasn't our efforts, our capabilities, our prowess, our intellectual ability. It wasn't even our ability to make good friends. Nothing we could imagine, nothing we could create, nothing we could do got us to this point. God's saying, it is my grace through and through that took you from death in the full life and now begins to turn your attention. Third posture, back to walking. For we are created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. Literally, for which God prepared in advance to be the way we will walk in. He goes back to the same word that he used to talk about us being walking dead. But now we are walking fully alive in good works that God originally created us to do that he originally designed us to do. He made us for these good works, for causing his creation to flourish, for being the evidence that God is alive and among his people and his creation, for being there in such a way that God's image would be evident in us. Not because we've done it, not because we managed to somehow come up with a way to do it, but because in Christ Jesus, his whole reason for grabbing us out of death and seating us in the highest realms with Christ was so that we can re-engage our place in his world, created in Christ Jesus, to do good works, which God prepared beforehand to be the way we will walk. Our walking is not like zombies but as people who are cultivating life, who are entering into the muck and mire of the world and finding ways to see life flourish in the midst of it, who, who are because of Christ Jesus alive in us and alive with us, that, that we are able to, to cultivate a life that is rich and flourishing and, and that creation will shout its praise to God together. They're no longer the walking dead we are the walking fully alive in a way that the world can't imagine, in the way the world has yet to witness. We are those who are alive in Christ, not in some future, but already right here, right now. 
the question this text puts in front of us is, will we own up to our own death? Will we really acknowledge that, that apart from Christ Jesus, we are truly dead? And having acknowledged that we are truly dead, will we receive that grace of God in Jesus Christ, that lavish love and mercy that raises us up and says, I restore you, I make you now who I intended you to always be so that you can do and live, live and move and have your being in the way I always intended you to. Next week, we're going to dive into what comes right after this. There's not a nice break in the Greek text like there is in the NIV. It continues right into the first thing saying, reconciliation between Jew and Gentile, between people who are ethnically and religiously opposed to each other, God is making the two one in Christ Jesus. The first application of being made whole and being made new and being made alive is reconciliation. And we're going to dig into that next week. What does that reconciliation look like among us and as we engage the world around us? For today, it's critical for us to see that we need to be able to name we were dead. And in Christ, we have been made alive and we have been made able to live as God has desired always for us to live. Let's pray. God, you are amazing. We don't quite know what words to use to describe you because it doesn't make sense. We were dead because we turned our backs on you. We cut ourselves off from you, the very life source of all of creation, of us. We rebelled against you. We sinned against you and against each other. We abandoned your creation and the role you called us to play in it. And yet, even in our dying, you drew near to us. You came to us in Jesus Christ who himself entered into our death in order to raise us up with him. And you set our feet on a new path, a new way of living. And we don't fully understand that new way of living yet, Lord, but, but it's kind of daunting. We don't know what it looks like or how to live fully alive. And so we pray, Holy Spirit, Show us how to abandon the path of death in Christ Jesus and how to live in this new path of life you call us to. Press in our hearts and our minds the ways we need to experience this resurrection in our lives today. We confess that we are dead. And we pray that you would give us the grace to receive the new life that is ours in Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.